Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks, and if you're familiar by now, this is the uh, this is the uh, uh, web series that uh, and podcast series where I speak to a lot of great business authors about the books that they have written. Uh, today, I am speaking with Mark Ackler, who is co-author of a book called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy. Mark co-wrote this book with Mert E. Sherry. Mert is not here uh, for this conversation. It is just Mark. But uh, Mark, first of all, thanks for joining me. What a great book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Gene, thanks. You know, it's such an honor. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and and your audience. And um, it's so nice to be here. So thanks. Yeah, yeah me too. And, uh, you know, this is a... Um, it, it, it's a fascinating book because it, yeah, I've been talking to other authors that have been writing books on buying and selling businesses. And this, this has a different angle, which I'll explain a little bit in a minute. But before we even get to that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, thanks. Yeah, the danger of asking an old guy with adult ADD uh, my story. I, I'll give you the short version. The short version is... <laughs> I've been in tech all my life, worked at Apple in the very beginning days. I've got great Steve Jobs stories from early on the beginning and uh, uh, became an entrepreneur. So I started four different companies where I was the co-founder CEO. You know, the first one did okay. Second one failed miserably. Lots of scar tissue. Third one did great. Fourth one did better. And then I became a venture capitalist. So I, in the dot-com days, had the first fund life was good, companies were going public. That second fund, the, when the crash hit, mm-hmm. not so much fun, <laughs> uh, but I'm very proud to say 12 years later that we were a top quartile for our uh, vintage in venture capital, um, which doesn't mean anything other than we got our, our LPs, their money back and we were in the black. And then I started a fourth company um, and then I went to, to Redbox, the movie kiosks, where I was the head of innovation, part of the executive team, and also the um, interim chief marketing officer for the company, helped them build and grow and scale that business. And then I became, uh, I started my current venture capital fund in 2013 called Math Venture Partners. And so I'm a a VC and I'm also, uh, as you can see from the t-shirt, uh, an adjunct professor at Northwestern at Kellogg, their business school, uh, uh, where I'm teaching tonight. Are you teaching? Uh, is your class or, or your course on selling or buying businesses or is it on other topics? No, other topics. So this is my 10th year. Right. I'm teaching two, two classes. Uh, one is called Building Innovation Teams and Culture. Mm. So my joke is I'm the professor the other professors make fun of because I talk about the soft stuff. And I'm also teaching, teaching a class starting in the spring on entrepreneurial leadership Great. and sort of the tenets of leadership. So why, why write this book? Uh, it's a great story. So the, look, I've been a CEO four times. I've gone through plenty of exits as a CEO. I've been a VC since 1996. I've invested in over hundred companies, sat on dozens of boards, gone through many transactions as an investor and as a board member. And I really, you know, I thought I had a pretty good handle on it. And so uh, my partner, Mert, uh, was a young entrepreneur. And uh, he came 10 years ago when he was starting his business. 
he came to pitch me to invest in his company. And we said, no, my partner and I, Troy said, we said, no, but we really like Mert. Mm. Mert was a great guy. Mm -hmm. And so we became friends and I became a coach and a mentor. And over the course of years, as his business grew, he came uh, and pitched us several times. We always said, no, it just didn't meet our investment thesis. Mm -hmm. But when it came time to sell his business, and even though I wasn't an investor and I wasn't on his board, I was the go-to phone call. You know, mm -hmm. all entrepreneurs, all transactions have an emotional arc. It has, they, all transactions have the ups and downs. There's a pencil down moment where the transaction is hanging by a thread. And, you know, I was the phone call. I was the call. I was the guy who was talking him off the ceiling and helping him through the difficult moments of the transaction. And when it was over, this is in March of 2020, right a week before everything shut down for COVID. Mm -hmm. So that was also part of the urgency of the transaction. And um, it was a difficult transaction. Hmm. And Mert and I, a couple of days later, after it closed, we're having coffee at Mert's bitching. Like Mert's just, rah, 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 rah. I go, Mert, Mert, mm -hmm. wait a minute. This is a moment of joy. Yeah. You just sold yeah. your company. Yeah. It's a life-changing event. Yeah. Like you should be happy. And you're going to have to work with these people for the next, you know, a year, two years, three years, however long it you can hold out. Like you don't want to start a new relationship on a bad footing. Yeah. And I said to I said to Mert, in the spirit of giving back, why don't you write it down? Write down all your feelings. Write down what happened so that the next time, um, in, in his case, the acquiring company was SC Johnson, big consumer, you know, packaged good, consumers goods uh, company. The next time they buy a tech company and, you know, they could buy warehouses and other CPG companies, but they really never um, had bought a tech company before. And there's some right. nuances to it, right? And I said, the next time they buy a tech company, you can say to, now that you're on the inside, you can say to them, hey, this is what I went through. Sure, sure. Here's how we can make the experience better. Sure. Outpoured 10 pages. And I looked at that and I went, you know. There's a book in there somewhere. There's a book in there. Yeah. And once again, in the spirit of giving back and the yeah. spirit of helping other entrepreneurs, we realized like there's a lot of wisdom um, that most entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, don't really have access to. Right, that's right. That's and right. so we so we set out to write a book. It makes yeah, it makes complete sense. And what th this book is different from other buying and selling you know books because um, most of the people I've talked to and and Mark, most of my clients, um, yeah, I'm a CPA. I have a lot of clients with a, they they skew older demographic. Right. So you got people running businesses, their family-owned businesses. They're, already, they're thinking about succession planning. They're thinking about exiting out. They sell, you know, pipes and they sell containers and they sell, you know, metal framing. It, you know, that's like kind of their business. But this, I don't think, although they can take a lot of information from this book. So I, I you know, I don't want to dissuade anybody, you know, from, from getting value from this book. But this seems to be targeted at a specific type of business, um, you know, a tech business. And you even say in the title, you, you say how to sell your startup which 
is also sort of goes, you know, you think like, well, I just started up my business. Why am I selling it? You know? So why, why take that approach? Well, so first of all, we, we do come from a technology background. And while the principles in the book apply to any everybody. business, sure. everybody, um, we do write it from the lens of a more startup uh, world, technology world. Um, we interviewed dozens and dozens of CEOs from small companies and medium-sized companies, from large companies, from many different industries. And we asked the CEOs, um, tell us the real story. Yeah. You know, most most um, buying and selling companies, most people don't talk about it. One because um, there's confidentiality agreements, like you're prohibited. Sure. The second is if it was a really good outcome, nobody wants to brag. You know, I'm from the Midwest, especially. You know, we're a little bit like we don't like to brag. Or if it was a bad outcome, nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to admit it. And right, and I and so we said, tell us if you had an adult child who was selling a business, tell like tell us like the real story. Like, what would you tell them? Right. And we're big believers in empathy, so we like we interviewed all the stakeholders around the table. We interviewed bankers, and we interviewed M and A attorneys, and we interviewed the heads of corp dev for all these major corp, you know, major, in this case, mostly technology companies. And we asked the leaders at Corp Dev, like, tell us examples of some of your best deals and why and what made it such a good deal. And tell us examples of some of your worst deals. Yeah. You know, Cause a lot of deals fall apart and are never successful. Right? And we said, what do you wish CEOs knew before they came to talk to you? Right? And we got all of this incredible, wisdom that we sort of organized and collected in um, a framework that we, that we'll talk about in a second. We call yeah. it. Yeah. It's coming out framework. Fair framework. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about that. I mean, you, you start off and you dig into, I mean, the whole book is really aligned around this framework um, and, and the fair framework as you, you know, as you present it, as you introduce it, um, it stands for fit alignment, integration, and rationale. Um, so Mark, you know, walk us through this. And again, I also want to say, I don't want to, uh, this is not to discourage people from buying the book because we're having a, you know, a short conversation about it. And there is a lot more detail um, to be found when reading the book. But um, again, just for, for somebody being introduced to it and, and to, you know, to encourage people to dig into it further, tell me more about the FAIR framework. Yeah, so we're, we started, we're in the pattern, rec as I'm a venture capitalist, so I invest in technology companies. And I, I think of myself as sort of in the pattern recognition business. And over the course of decades, you sort of build, you see patterns. And, and one of the things that we saw in all of these interviews and all of my experience going through M&A is some patterns. Mm -hmm. And we were able to put that together in this framework. So FIT stands for cultural fit. Okay. You know, can you, like, do you like the people? Do you share values? Can you be, you know, can you spend a day with the other person and um, you know, not want to scream at the end of the day? Can you, like, when the doors are closed and decisions are made, do you share that same sure. sort of 
cultural orientation of how you make decisions. If I can interrupt you for, for a minute. So, you know, the book is about selling your startup. So when you're saying, do you like the people, are you saying um, as a, as a seller, do you like the people that are going to be acquiring your business or yeah. the other way around? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, yes. Okay. <laughs> Both ways. Yes. Right. And Both. I think this, this framework is actually bi-directional. It's every bit as much for people who are purchasing businesses yep. as it is for people who are being acquired. So if but, I, um, and, and again, apologies for interrupting, but I just, sure. it's a really important point that I'd like you to make is that, um, you know, the, the, you said like, does, does the buyer fit into the culture of the company, right? If I'm selling the business, say we take it from that side, right? Um, why, why would a seller care? You know, if I'm selling my business, um, okay, maybe it's my baby, maybe it's not my baby, but you know, I'm getting my check and I'm, I'm getting out of here. What, why would I care that the buyer fits into, you know, the culture of my, of my company, which I'm leaving? Well, that's a great question. And maybe you're leaving, maybe. Right. But let me ask you a question I'll back. Which yeah. is, I'm a big believer in servant leadership, meaning there's a greater responsibility. So if you think of it as a zero sum game mm -hmm. where the only thing that matters is the check, the size of the check I get, I, the founder. Okay. That's one lens to look at it, yep. but we have a greater responsibility. And so one of the questions I ask CEOs who sell their company is what's the time horizon that you're evaluating this on and will your employees Yep. Will they come to work for you if you started a next company? Yep. Will your, and how, did you really take care of your employees? Right. Will your customers, like, are you, is this the best home for your customers? You just spent, you know, X number of years, like, hopefully you love your customers. Like, hopefully you care about them. Like, is this going to be, a, are you going to orphan them? Is this going to be a good home for your customers? Your partners, your invest. If you have investors, mm -hmm. my question is: Will your investors invest in your next company? Mm -hmm. Right. It's amazing how the attitude towards companies really have. I mean, you remember the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas yeah, you know, 100 course. years ago, and you know the whole basis is that he's the ugly venture capitalist is going to you know buy a business and you know you know break it up into pieces and sell off <laughs> the assets or whatever. I, yeah, that still goes on, obviously. And in the end, it's a free market and, you know, people are going to still want to try and, and profit. But I think you're right. I, for most of the clients that I see, most of the people that I interview, um, they built something, they recognize the importance of, you know, of, of their employees, their customers, their partners, their suppliers, it's an organization of people that depend on them. And just to, to walk away from that, just because you get a big check, um, I'm finding fewer people willing to do that. And you mentioned something as well, just about, it's not just, you know, it's a small world that we live in. It is a small world and damn straight. you can't just walk away from a transaction. I mean, if you behave in a certain way in a transaction, you're going to be back at some point. You're going to be doing business with these people in the future. And that's right. With you, right? Your reputation, like once again, are you short-term or long-term? Yeah. Your reputation your legacy. We put the word legacy in the title of the book for a reason, right. because we think we have a longer term time horizon and your reputation really matters. I mean, so, so that's cultural fit. Yeah. Okay. The second piece of it is alignment and alignment is are all the stakeholders on both sides of the equation. 
you know, are your invest your board of directors, your investors, your co-founders, your employees, your spouse, you, you know, your your significant other. You have alignment of interests on one side of the equation. And on the other side, and this is a really important point, oftentimes in a transaction, there's always a champion of the, the acquiring company has a champion. Sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's the head of sales or the head of product, or like there's always somebody who's a champion. And most, especially inexperienced CEOs, rely on the champion of the acquiring company to build alignment internally from the, uh, the acquiring company's perspective. Okay. And we have a different point of view, which is you can't outsource. Like, even though like, it's your job not to work with the champion, your champion, to make sure that you identify all the key stakeholders mm -hmm. and you make sure they're all on board. A lot of transactions fall apart because the CFO isn't aligned or the, the board of directors, the CEO or the C like there's alignment is really, really important. Yeah. And the C and if you're being acquired, you got to admit, you just can't trust your champion to do, to, to do it for you. Got it. You know, you say, you say all the stakeholders and um, I have to ask you in your experience is, is that reality? I mean, do, do all the stakeholders ultimately get aligned or no. is it, you know, or, or is it, have you seen in your experience that, you know, the more reality is 80 to 90% of them are aligned and the others just go along? Of course, it, 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 human nature, right? right. But right. you got to have enough, like the, the question is who can kill it? Yes. Because there are stakeholders and there are stakeholders, right? Right. <laughs> Right. And, and look, you're going to be spending an enormous amount of time, like going through a transaction, you're taking your eyes off the ball. You're, you're like, this is a time suck. Like nobody's ever, like you just, you can't imagine how much time it's going to take. And so you want to, if you're going to invest that amount of time and energy, and you, this is your, your baby, your lifeblood, like this is your future. Like you want to, there's some things you just can't outsource. So okay. alignment. So fit the next and alignment are the first two, the first two uh, yeah. you know, letters in the acronym FAIR. Now we're up to integration. Go ahead. Yeah. So integration is um, the ugly stepchild. <laughs> integration, everybody says, oh yeah, like we'll deal with that after the deal closes. <laughs> True. Always, always. But integration is all right what kind of resources are we going to get what's our budget are we going to be integrated with uh the, the acquiring company sales team yeah are we going to have investment in technology yeah. are the technology platforms going to be in if it's technology i come from yeah. a technology world yeah. like is it going to be integrated yeah. like, like and and it matters. Yeah, it matters for your current employees. Yeah, but more importantly, in in my world, a lot of times a transaction has two components. It's there's some money up front, and there's some money in the future based on hitting some performance objectives. Well, the minute you sell your company, you're no longer in control. So if you don't have a a well articulated integration plan and you have earnouts based on hitting some performance objectives, yeah. 
and you don't you don't get the resources necessary to hit those objectives like there's real significant material financial implications to you and, and if you don't really have a well thought through and written down uh implementate integration plan and I, i've got actually two things to add to that which i i could agree with you more um I would say out of the four items in this acronym for Fairmark, um, for your employees, it seems like integration would probably be the most important thing. You know, for Chila, I'd be first because what what happens if you're working for a company and then you find out that your your company is being sold? I mean, what's your first thought? Am I going to lose my job? You know, like how is this company going to integrate into the acquiring company? Am I going to they going to eliminate my department or whatever? So that has to be thought out in advance, if only to, you know, for, for your employees to know, because again, whoever's buying your company, one of the biggest reasons I'm sure is because of your workplace and your employees and the talent, you know, that you have. So that's gotta be thought. And then I think the other part of it, and this is more from an IT standpoint is, um, there are a lot of integration issues, not only from IT, but also just policy process procedure, um, how things sure. are done. And even if somebody is like, yeah, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to be fired. I'm the, I, you know, I'm, I'm the IT manager. I'm in, I'm in charge of this ERT, ERP system or, you know, you know, whatever. Um, the, 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 the stress and the headaches that it, it starts saying like, oh shit, you know, they've got <laughs> dynamics and we've got sage, you know, so um, my, my next year is going to be like hell, you know, um, it's, it's a, uh, that has to be thought about and addressed in advance because people will quit, you know, when they, when they hear, you know, stuff like that. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's very rarely happens. Integration is never discussed as yeah. part of the deal upfront. And then the last piece, and I think the most important piece okay. is rationale is how is one plus one equal a hundred. Right. Right. And you know, what's really interesting is most transactions are usually based on a multiple of some financial number. So it could be a multiple of EBITDA, or it could be a multiple of top line revenue. Every, every business, every industry is a little bit different or how it's measured. Right. But if you think about it, that's looking backwards, right? So that is a financial statement. This is historically what we have done in the past. Yep. Yep. And we're, and we're giving you a little bit of a premium because of what you've done in the past. Yep. But my question is, what could we do together with the new company? Right. So I, I, I would use a couple examples. So one example, um, when Facebook, now Meta, bought Instagram. Instagram was a small company, like 14 people. They... Um, had virtually no revenue right. and um, Mark Zuckerberg bought them for just under a billion dollars. And everybody thought, oh my God, this guy's lost it. Right. A zero revenue company. Right. But what they didn't understand is the rationale. Like why did they buy them? Yeah. And do you know, last year, uh, Instagram represented over 20 billion with a B, 20 billion of revenue to Facebook. What they didn't understand is if you took the Instagram numbers and put it inside the Facebook sales team, 
What could the sales, the, the Facebook sales team do, the ad sales team do off of those numbers? Mm. And what they also didn't understand is that Facebook at the time was very much in the, uh, the web based mm. and not in mobile. Mm -hmm. And Instagram was mostly mobile. Mm -hmm. And this was a way for Facebook to philosophically move more into the mobile marketplace. Sure. Right. And so that rationale, I'll give you one more. I'll give you another example. Please. My partner, Troy, um, at my venture fund, Math Venture Partners, mm -hmm. when he was a young guy, he had a business in the late 1980s, early 1990s. It was a little dev shop. It was just a little development shop. And they did a project for um, Hyatt Hotels, which was an inventory management system where they maintained the uh, intellectual property rights for and they decided to pitch Medline. Medline's a big hospital supply company. Uh, they sell uh, consumables to most hospitals. And uh, they tried, They pitched Medline on this, this um, property management software. And Medline says, yeah, that's great. We want to do it, but we want to buy you. And Troy went, I'm not for sale. I just want some business. Right. They went, no, no, no. We really want to buy you. And so they offered at the time his business was doing about a million dollars and dev shops, you know, they got a one X, maybe a one and a half X. And they offered him, Medline offered him $2 million. And he said, no. And then they came back and said 3 million. He said, no. And finally they came back and they offered him $5 million. And Troy's like, I've got this little million dollar business. You're going to give me five X. Right. And Troy went, went, okay. How can I say no? Right. I, I, <laughs> Right. Fine. Right. Right. I, okay. And Troy's thinking to himself, "Oh my God, these guys are idiots! Like, like I just nailed, like I just nailed it. I am the smartest negotiator on the planet." I think I know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, Troy never bothered to ask, well, "Why are you buying us? And how are you going to use us?" And turns out. What they did, Medline did, is they went to all their customers and said, you know, we've got this new uh, asset management system. And uh, if you extend your contract from one year to three years, we'll throw it in for free. Okay. First year, they generated over $100 million of new revenue on this, this, this platform. $100 million. Now, that's year one year two, year three. Now you take the Medline multiple, like yeah. what's Medline worth? Yeah. Like easily, he generated a billion dollars of market cap for Medline over the course of a few years. Yeah. yeah. Easy. <laughs> because he never bothered to ask, like, what's the rationale? How are you going to use this? Do you realize, Mark, that your friend and partner, Troy, violated every single part of the fair framework he didn't see the fit he didn't see the alignment he didn't understand the integration he even understand the rationale he still sold the business for five million you know? right. <laughs> he's, he's a, a good right <laughs> yeah so, so anyway, that, that's just an example so we have this saying so i have the, i'm a big believer in empathy i have the, i have three rules of empathy right it's not about you it's always about the person sitting across the table. Right. Do your homework. Right. Like really, really do your homework, like deeply. Right. And bring a gift, which is add value. Right. 
right? It's like because so part of this, part of the relationships here is when we talk to the heads of corp dev from Apple and Google and Facebook and you know, Meta and Amazon and Snowflake and Atlassian and mm -hmm. all these big companies, mm -hmm. they said we like to buy companies from people that we trust, mm -hmm. people that we have relationships with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that is in the book mm -hmm. is building relationships early. Right. And not and really getting to know, because if you're in order to create a rationale where one plus one equals a hundred, you're yeah. going to have to really understand. Yes. The, the acquiring company, who they are, what they need, how you can add value. Sure, sure. Right? So, which brings me to another part, which is the exit talk. Okay. I don't know if you saw that part in the book. Of course. So, so there is a stigma to talking about exits. Yep. C CEOs are kind of afraid to talk about exits with their boards of directors because they feel like, um, their investors, their their board are going to feel like, oh, if they're talking about an exit, then their heart's not in it. Right. Like they they're ready. They're giving up. Right. That they're ready. That they, they they might get fired. Right. And we have an opposite approach. Like most people think, uh, in our world, just put your head down, build a great company, and eventually something good will happen. Right. We think that we should have a regularly scheduled once a year annual exit talk that the exit should be a strategic conversation where it's a safe zone where the ceo can lead a conversation that says look you know life is good we're still growing market share the technology if it's technology the technology is still ahead of the curve yep. you know we're not ready but over the course of years, yep. as things change and evolve, and maybe yep. you have new competition, maybe you're getting older or tired, maybe you're, um, you know, the technology needs some serious investment or the product line needs some serious investment. And if you have that conversation, you can build alignment. And in my world, the venture capital world, VCs have a, a time horizon. So if you're year one of a venture fund, we're like, yay, go for it. Mm -hmm. If you're year 10 of a venture fund, it's like, you know, me the money. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got to get our LPs or money back. That's right. Right. That's and right. so building alignment and time horizon, but what it really does is it gives you the luxury of time. Because if you can plan out, 18 months, two years, three years, and you think your acquirer will be, maybe it could be your competition, maybe it's a strategic buyer. If it's a strategic buyer, maybe they care about top line revenue and you can maybe, you know, turn the knobs a little bit, hire some more salespeople, put a, invest a little bit more in marketing, push the top line a little bit harder. It gives you a chance to get your data room in order. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons when we talked to corp dev leaders and we said, how come deals fall apart? Number one answer, sloppy data room. Mm -hmm. So it, what is the data room? A data room is where all your financial statements are, sure. making sure they're in, in really, you know, pristine contracts, your agreements, all the supporting documentation for it. Yep. All and, intellectual property, sure. 
sure your you know your trademarks are filed sure. if you have patents they're up to date that the ip assignments from your employees are all signed yep all the things that you should be doing anyway that so many businesses it kind of ignore until they get to the, the the conversations about exiting out of their business like oh geez we've got a we have to address all this and, but you should uh, be doing that ongoing. From the very beginning, yeah, from the very yeah. beginning. It's almost like I was just having a conversation with a prospective client, uh, not, not a prospective, current client, who was talking about like maybe they're going to sell their business sometime. Um, and we were saying like, well, if, if you think you're going to sell your business sometime in the next five to 10 years, you should be getting audits of your financials like right. now. You know, like you don't bring in the accountants at the time of your exit where they have right. to go back three to five years, you know, like start that process now, I have a question for you on that, though, because um, it was one thing that you you, um, you you lightly touched on in the book, and I was curious if you could kind of expand on it, is when, you know, if you have, if you think about exits from the beginning, and you do have, you know, regularly scheduled meetings to discuss, an, a, you know, potential exit for the business, just to make sure you're aligned, and you're, you're you know, staying good with your strategy, does it, do you ever have any, you know, clients of yours or any uh, companies you've invested in that, you um, they're identifying even at an early stage potential buyers sure. yeah so they're yeah. saying like you know what i know we just started this business this year uh we're not going to sell it anytime soon but if we're going to sell it we're you know one of our target buyers is meta for example you know right. and if that's the case what do we need to be doing now that would make ourselves very attractive to that target buyer five years now is that a common thing to think about for sure. And building relationships, reaching out to them, talking yes. to the corp dev leaders, talking to product managers, like finding out where they're going and where they care about and where the holes are. By the way, I'm a big believer in, in understanding the financial levers and the KPIs of a strategic partner. So sort of like the Jedi mind trick is if you're working with a publicly traded company, they have a quarterly earnings call. You should be listening in on that or reading the, the transcripts of the quarterly earnings calls. And you should see what KPIs they're reporting on. Like what, what do they really care about? And you should listen in to the analysts and, and what questions are the analysts asking? Mm. And what do the analysts care about? What if it's not publicly held? Where would you go for that? information i would just reach out to them directly okay. and, and 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 by the way you know we talk about like should you be talking to your competition mm. i i think you should like i think you should be talking to your strategic partners i think you should be talking to your competition mm. and we're not saying give away trade secrets and you know open up the kimono and give them financials i'm not saying that at all but you could be having the conversation of how do we make our industry larger how do we grow the pie for everybody mm. right? right and you could be perceived as a thought leader because in going back to bring a gift adding value you know when i sold my first company i sold it to semantic in 1992 but before i sold it to semantic i built up over the years every time i went to silicon valley I dropped in on Gordon Eubanks, who was the CEO at the time of Semantic. We built a relationship. We built trust. We talked about just what's happening in the industry at large. Sure. And so that when it was time to sell the company, I just picked up the phone to Gordon and said, hey, Gordon, I got an unsolicited offer. I wasn't planning on selling the company, but now that we're 
you know, we're considering it, you know, you're my first call. Mm. And he's like, yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Cause you've had a relationship and you built, you built that up. And, and by the way, although um, you do mention, you know, about um, not giving away uh, trade secrets or whatever, also, you know, we all need to be careful when we're talking to competitors about potential uh, anti-competitive uh, regulations, well, of course, uh, obviously <laughs> price fixing, that kind of yes. stuff. So yes, we grow the industry, but on a, you know, on a relative basis, Mark, yeah. let me, I, I want to jump into just a couple of things that you also, we got, you know, we only have about 15 minutes left and I wanted to, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, this is a, just a great conversation and um, just a couple points I wanted you to flesh out, you know, for, for our listeners and our viewers, you do, you, you talk about the cap table and you talk okay. about cap table management and you say it's one of the most important decisions you've got to make, you know, right at the very beginning, you know, what do you mean by cap table management? What do you mean by dead equity? Oh, such a great question. Thanks, Gene. Um, the decisions you make at the beginning of your journey mm. have an outsized impact at the end of your journey around equity. Mm. Who gets what? And many entrepreneurs, especially inexperienced first-time entrepreneurs, when they start businesses for the first time, tend to be much more liberal and give away equity. And so debt equity is equity that's being held by people who are not actively participating in the company at the time. So it could be a co-founder who left. It could be some executives who are no longer there. It could be an advisor that you gave shares to who really didn't add value. And when there's a sale, there's something called a waterfall distribution of assets, which is just a fancy term for saying who gets what. When, when the company gets sold, how do we decide who, who gets paid what? And in my world, in the technology world, oftentimes there are preferred shares and common shares. And so preferred shares oftentimes have not only uh, control provisions, but we also have financial provisions such as um, there's like a 2X preference right. or participating preferred, or there's a dividend, um, which by the way, are all coming back in vogue these days. They certainly are. <laughs> right. And, and, so, and yeah. so when I say to entrepreneurs, look, what are the common shares worth at the end of the day? And, and how much of those common shares are held by people who are actively there today yeah. versus people who are no longer part of the company? Got it. Got it. And you want to think about that early on, I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, right at the end. And that's not just at the outset of selling your business, but at the outset of forming your business. That's I right. have so many clients that I just wrote a piece on this for the uh, Philly Inquirer about uh, just common buy-sell agreements when you have more than one partner and yeah. how few startups actually have those in place. <laughs> I, I, I tell, I, so I teach a class at Kellogg at Northwestern and I tell my students, um, are you now part of the greater Ackler family? <laughs> like, but there's one way of getting, there's two ways of getting kicked out of the family. One, if you're a jerk, like, like <laughs> no assholes rule. And two, <laughs> you know, if you, if you don't have a co-founders agreement yep. at the beginning yep. and don't file an 83 B election yep. at the beginning, that's all, like immediate expulsion from the Ackler family. Like, <laughs> sorry. 
it's true. It's just a, it's a roadmap to follow on that. So that you know, and again, I guess again for if you're listening to this, you're watching this. Uh, maybe you're just a privately held business. Maybe you're a family-owned business. Cap table management is you know is is no different um, than making sure you've got your cap table under control. And usually that's done through a buy sell agreement. Usually that is you know at the outset determined on what happens if somebody gets hit by a bus, gets divorced, gets arrested, gets fired, dies. Um, it's just a roadmap, you know, to follow and to follow that roadmap, you need to make sure that you've got all of your, you know, all of your shareholders in place. Um, and, and, and by the way, by the way, just one thing, Gene, sure. which is, and it should be in writing Yes. because people are imperfect. Yes. Memory is imperfect. People hear different things. Yes. If you love somebody, if you trust somebody, put it in writing. So that brings me to my next point. And we're, we're jumping around here in, in the book, but I, I, I just want to make sure you, you talk about putting things in writing. So you, you have a whole area of the book where you talk about uh, letters of interest uh, or letters of intent, you know, whatever they're called, term sheets, you know, the actual closing documents that are needed just to see, you know, a deal through. You know, uh, you know is all of that necessary? And, you know, because in your, I know you're like, what, what, what do you say? I mean, in the end, the only, I thought the only legal document, and explain this to me, I thought the only legal document is the actual agreement of sale. Everything else, like a letter of intent or a term sheet or, you know, a letter of interest are there, you know, it, you're, you can't really go to, do people go to court over those? They just seem like just a way to document, you know, a tentative step forward. But give me your thoughts on those. Great question. <laughs> so this is actually not a, you're absolutely, you are a hundred percent correct. The only document that really is legally binding is the final closing documents. But it's, this is not a question of legality. This is a question of negotiation and negotiating leverage. So here's the thing. Who writes the, the closing docs? the acquiring company. Who's writing it? The attorneys for the acquiring company. Right. If there's something left silent, how are they going to interpret? They're going to interpret anything not spoken about and in the favor of the acquiring company. Always. Right. So here's what happens. Most, especially inexperienced entrepreneurs, they think, oh, we'll just sign a really simple letter of intent or term sheet. It will do all I care about is the top number. And then we'll work out all the details later. Right. That's what they say. Yeah, we'll just work out all the details later. They do. <laughs> well, guess what? The minute, like the minute you sign that term sheet, you just lost 90% of your leverage. Like it's just gone. Yeah. So here, I'll give you a, a very concrete example. You, you, Gene, you made the comment. Well, in, in my world, most of the time the entrepreneur stays on at least for a year or two years, right? Yeah. Um, it's very rare that the the CEO just sells it and just walks away. Right. In, in my, it, it certainly happens, of course. Right. But but in my world, uh, they're buying people and, and they hope, they expect the CEO to stay on. The CEO comp and is never talked about or a comp of the executive team is never talked about in the term sheet. Oh, 
I, I got to tell you. Critical item to address early on, correct? Of course, it's like <laughs> huge, right? right? And, and so what I have come to understand, and, and by the way, I have done this, like writing this book was so eye-opening for me. I learned, you know, I went into this going, yeah, you know, I've been a CEO four times. I've sold businesses. I've been a board member, investors. I've gone through lots of transactions. This will just confirm what I already know. Couldn't have been further from the truth. I learned so much. And one of the things that I learned is what is material and what needs to be negotiated up front? And where do you lose leverage? Because I got to tell you, if, if in my world, if you have investors um, and you get a deal and the top number is great and, every, and there's so much momentum to like close the deal, close the deal, close the deal, close the deal. And then a week before the deal is about to close, they go, oh yeah, here's your comp package. Yeah. <laughs> And you're the CEO, try going back to your board and going, oh yeah, I'm not doing this deal because my comp isn't what I wanted it to be. Right, right. Well, well, well said. So um, listen, as we, and by the way, just, just to add to that, you know, in my business, my, my company, we, we sell CRM systems like Salesforce and Dynamics and systems sure. like that. And um, so our salespeople, they generate quotes and a, a quote is not a legally binding document. Our contract is. But to your point, that quote must have everything in it that's agreed upon with the, with the client so that I can just basically take it and attach it to the contract and say, this is what it is, you know, and a, and a letter of intent should be the same thing, right? Right. And, and so the question is, because most, so here's the thing. If you're a CEO, you're, you know, maybe you sell one company. If you're in the hall of fame of CEOs, maybe you sell three or four or five companies, but the acquiring companies, like they do this, they could eat your lunch. Yeah. They're pros. Yeah. They do this all the time. Yeah, sure, sure. And they know, they know that the minute you sign that letter of intent, you've lost all your leverage. Right. Right. That's a great and point. And so they're, they're, they're saying, they're saying, yeah, look, just focus on the number. Every, we'll worry about everything else. And they also want to take you off the market. There's an ex exclusivity period, right? So like, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just we'll get the term sheet done and then we'll worry about everything else later. And they also know their attorneys, they're writing the contract. Mark, listen, we're almost out of time. So let me, uh, let me wrap with this. So, you know, my son um, always loves to have fun with my mother, his grandmother. Uh, and, and when, sometimes when he sees her, he asks her to, uh, to rank the grandchildren favorite to least favorite, which is a really, <laughs> which is a hilarious thing to ask. And of course she's unable to do that, but, um, I'm going I'm to put you on the spot with the yeah. same question. You've got your fair acronym, fit alignment, integration, and rationale. You know where I'm going with this. We've, we've already established that your partner, Troy has violated all four of those rules. Um, but for you, if, if you were to pick just one out of those four and can you, but I would like you to put you on the spot. What do you think is the most important of the, of the fair framework? Well, here, here's what I'll say to maximize return. It's rationale okay. because the strong, like the better, the rationale, the, 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 the stronger the rationale, 
the person's the company's going to pay you the more money when they realize when you together articulate the the value together right that's the way to build the most value right but my favorite is fit is cultural fit okay. because life's too short to deal with people you don't share values with yep like I, i'm sorry it's you know. it's funny because it, it's like a one that that's the emotional answer and then you've got the pragmatic answer which is rationale you know what i mean <laughs> you have to figure out a way to balance those two yeah yeah stuff. yeah I, I think i'd like your son <laughs> it's, he's very funny he's very yeah. funny everyone the book is called exit right how to sell your startup maximize your return and build your legacy i have been talking with mark ackler mark co-wrote this book with mert e sherry uh, you can find this on Amazon if you are looking to sell your, it, you do not necessarily have to be a technology company. This is a book written for anybody that has recently started up their company, but has to have an eye on the ball for the future and position their company uh, to maximize the, their exit, whenever that may be. It's really essential reading. Mark, um, thank you so much for joining me. This is a great conversation. Uh, Gene, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun. Um, stick around. I'm going to sign off. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for watching and listening. My name is Gene Marks. You have been watching and or listening Biz Books. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great conversation with another great author like Mark. So stay tuned and we'll see you again soon. Take care.